privilege, what a, a joy it is to be able to gather together to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. If you need a Bible, uh, Joey's up and he'll give one right to you. If you just raise your hand, I'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. We'll jump to some other places, but uh, we're going to start off with Luke 23, and uh, probably verse 33. We're going to look at Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to spend this afternoon remembering the awesome work that was done for each one of us upon the cross to bring us salvation, to bring us hope, to bring us everlasting life, joy, peace. Lord, so many things the cross accomplished in our lives, Lord, that, that we are so truly thankful, Lord, and that's what we are here to do, Lord, just to thank you and remember what was done for us. We do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you completely to be born again, Lord, you would especially touch their heart today. But, Lord, thank you for this time that we can celebrate it as believers, Lord. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you again for making time out of your busy schedules to come and celebrate Good Friday with us and, and to think about the cross. And we remember, indeed, it was at 12 noon in the blazing sun that it was darkened as the Son of God bore the sins of the world upon Himself, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, prior to that statement, our Lord had been betrayed, tried, repeatedly beaten. They ripped the very hair from his face. They punched him in his face and other parts of his body repeatedly. You know, we make a lot out of the fact that Jesus Christ was God, and so we should. But let's not forget that he was also a man. He was fully God and he was fully man. And you can know that, that when that whip came upon his back, he felt it like any other man or, or woman would feel it. So much... So was Jesus a man that uh, after Jesus was beaten, he's standing there before Pilate. Pilate says, behold the man. In other words, man, look what he took. This, he endured all this stuff. He's a man's man, if you will. He took it all on himself. And, and then from the cross, Jesus gave seven significant statements, each one special and in a purposeful order. And we'll look at those seven statements and then we'll enter into a time of communion and we should be out of here before, uh, before one o'clock. So let's first find the first one in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, starting in verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Let's consider what was done before these wonderful words of Jesus were spoken there on the cross. Now, they had beaten Jesus beyond recognition. He received a scourging that was done mercilessly by a trained soldier, a trained man that was trained in the art of torture, bringing much pain. They used a cat of nine tails, and we've talked about this before, which was a, a whip that had sharp bone, stone, and metal, you know, tied to the ends, so that every time it came down, it would embed into the flesh while this person is being whipped, and then they were tied to this whipping post. 
They placed a crown of thorns upon his head and made him carry this some 300 pound cross. And they took his open back and pressed it against the cross and took his hands and feet and drove nails, spikes through them, raised them up to hang there and die. And he looked at these people that just did all of this to him. And the very first words out of his mouth were, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You know, I think for some of us, sometimes the hardest things for us to do is to forgive people. It's so much easier to harbor unforgiveness and have an unforgiving spirit, which is just the opposite about what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. But someone may hurt us, and, and in our hearts we cannot forgive or forget. And, and of course, we're only hurting ourselves and keeping the wound open, but there's just something in us in our human nature that likes to harbor a grudge. That's why we need to listen to Jesus as He And his first words from the cross were, Father, forgive them. If we fail to grasp how wonderful these first words are, then we're going to miss out on the remaining six statements. whole purpose of Jesus coming to the cross was for our forgiveness, that we can be cleansed and forgiven of all of our sins. You see, when it says Jesus said, Father, forgive them, that that word for said, it's used in an imperfect tense of the verb which implies it generally represents a continual or repeated action. In other words, this is like the Lord is repeating this prayer. As soldiers nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them. As they lifted up the cross and put it into the hole of the ground, the Lord prayed, Father, forgive them. As he hung there between heaven and earth and heard religious people mocking him, he repeatedly prayed, Father, forgive them. Listen, Jesus could have easily said, Father, get him. <laughs> Father, judge them. Father, they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them. He could have said, I am and you're not, and blasted them out of existence. But not our Lord. He prayed from a heart of love for all of us. Father, forgive them. What an example for us to follow. These first words enable us to forgive others and experience the joy that comes with true forgiveness. Paul put this put it this way in Ephesians 4.32, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. How can we hold any unforgiveness in our hearts when we look at what Jesus did for us upon the cross and how Jesus forgave us for our sin? Now, the second words we find from Jesus on the cross is found down in verses 35 through 43 of Luke chapter 23. Look at Luke 23, verse 35. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first statement our Lord prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them. But in the second statement, Jesus spoke to a repentant sinner and gave him hope and gave him assurance that he was going to heaven when he died. The second saying from Jesus on the cross is, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, when they crucified our Lord, they put him between two thieves. Now, they could have put the two thieves together and put Jesus on the other side, which would have made more sense because it appears that they were partners in crime, that they knew each other. But instead, the Roman soldiers put the Lord Jesus between the two thieves and created an amazing situation that, in fact, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 15, 27 and 28, With them they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and on the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 tells us he was numbered with the transgressors. Without realizing it, these wicked men were obeying and fulfilling the plan of God uh, through divine prophecy. Jesus was numbered with the transgressions because evil men had concluded that he was a transgressor. The sinless Son of God was treated as a criminal. But that shouldn't surprise us because it was for sinners that Jesus came into the world to die for in the first place. Matthew one twenty one says, And she shall bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew twenty twenty eight, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus was associated with sinners and died with sinners and died for sinners. And when this thief trusted Jesus, he received far more than ever expected. Romans 5.20 tells us where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. See, this, this thief, he knew he was a lost sinner. But the good news, even there on the cross, the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Even up to his death on the cross, and on to the end of the age, it is God's desire, according to 1 Timothy 2.4, for all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. So one of the last things that Jesus did upon the cross was, was uh, draw someone to himself. So in faith, this condemned man turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded with the assurance of salvation. With the second saying from the cross, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It wasn't, Man, I hope you'll be with me in paradise. Or there's a good chance if we both make it out of here, we're going to be in paradise. No, by the power of the Son of God, who has the authority to forgive man's sin, Jesus said, surely it is certain you will be with me in paradise. How could this man know that his salvation was secure? Because Jesus told him so. And listen, he gives us the same assurance to us today. That whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Period. Exclamation point. Now we come to the third saying of Jesus on the cross. It's found in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. It says this. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. Now, the third saying of Jesus in John 19.27, Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. Now, I find this kind of fascinating in light of the fact that as we studied recently in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, Jesus had four half-brothers and a bunch of sisters. So he had family, you know, uh, step step family, and yet he skips over his earthly blood relatives and establishes a new family. Isn't that what the Lord does for us as we give our life to him? He gives us a, a new family, a, a church family, a family of believers that, that where we can celebrate what Jesus has done for us. 
Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect. Every family has a weird Uncle Charlie, and, and, you know, even in our Christian families. But that doesn't mean we're not family. And we, we take care of each other. And yet Jesus' words to John here, again, are in fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 69, 8 says, I become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. See, at this point, Jesus' half-brothers didn't believe in him. So he turned to the one who did, John. Why John? Well, no doubt it was partly because John was there, the only male disciple willing to jeopardize his life by taking a stand at the foot of the cross. And Jesus knew that John would be there to come alongside of Mary and to lift her up and, and to help her home. Family. Now we come to the fourth thing from Jesus upon the cross. That's found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 and 46. We'll put it up on the screen. Which I believe really is the hardest saying to fully grasp, to fully understand, to fully comprehend. And I don't think we'll really get the, the, the full meaning of it until we stand before our Lord in heaven. Matthew 27, verse 45 and 46 says this, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a fourth saying of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this too is prophetic. He's quoting Psalm 22, a prophetic psalm describing Jesus' death on the cross. But more than that, this needs to be understood in light of the fact that sinners, because of sin, have has made God hide his face from us. Listen to Isaiah, uh, what he says in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. But you see, sin has done even more than that. Sin caused the Lamb of God, the only begotten Son of God, to be despised, to be rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. For us. In fact, that's what Isaiah 53 tells us. We read of Jesus that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, when God placed upon his son the sins of the whole world, our sins, my sin, your sins, it caused God to literally turn his head from his son when Jesus paid the, the sin debt and purchased our salvation at the tremendous price of his own blood shed upon that cross. So as God turned his head, uh, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Out of necessity, God turned his back while Jesus died. God cannot look upon sin because God is holy. So that when Jesus bore our sin on the cross, our sin, my sin, your sin, it caused God to hide his face from his son as he paid that sin debt. The only possible way a holy God could save us was to make Christ to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This brings us to the fifth and sixth sayings of Jesus on the cross. Found back in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 28 and 30. And it reads this. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Number five, Jesus says in verse 28, I thirst. Now our Lord was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning, then spent three long hours on the cross in broad daylight. Then darkness came. And at the end of that darkness, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Understand, Jesus' first three statements from the cross centered on others, his enemies. Father, forgive them. The thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then with John and Mary. The central statement dealt with our sin. It focused on the Father. Why have you forsaken me? But now as we look at these last three statements Jesus makes on the cross, we see that now the Lord focused on Himself. Number five, His body, I thirst. Number six, His soul, it is finished. And number seven, His spirit, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Body, soul, and spirit were offered by the Lord Jesus Christ in total submission to His Father's will. But here in John 19, 28, number five is the shortest statement Jesus makes from the cross. He says, I thirst. Greek word, it's just, the two words are just one word in the Greek. It's called dispasao. And the simple word reveals the heart of the Lord Jesus and enables us to see His love in a deeper way. See, to say, I thirst, reminds us of the agony, personal agony He endured through it all. All that he went through to this point, three hours of darkness as the sun veiled its face and as the, the time of darkness Jesus cried out as the fellowship with the Father was temporarily broken and Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world. He cried out, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when Jesus was made sin for us. But when he completed that transaction for our salvation, when he endured hell for us, he says, I thirst. He was thirsty. Listen, we know that hell is a place of great thirst. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus told a man who died and woke up in a, in a place of judgment. And in the place, he said that he was thirsty and begged for somebody to come and give him just a drop of water to soothe his pain. Listen, hell is an eternal place of thirst where people will thirst endlessly and will never be satisfied. And here we read of the only one that can satisfy the thirst in mankind is now the one who's thirsty. We know that, that Jesus had given and shared many, many times that He is the answer to man's thirst. To the woman at the well there in Samaria, the woman who was trying to find satisfaction in sin, going through five husbands and, and living with a possible sixth one. We know that sin never quenches our inner thirst. It only increases the desire, but decreases the enjoyment. But when Jesus came to her, He said to her in John four thirteen and 14, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. John seven thirty seven, Jesus said, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus was using the example of Moses as when he hit the rock and water flowed from it. But in the same way, Jesus was smitten on the cross for us that we might have the water of life satisfying our thirst forever. And the question today is not, do you thirst? Because all of mankind thirst for forgiveness, all, all thirst for God, whether they admit it or not. The real question is, if you're not a Christian, how long will you go on thirsting when you could come to Jesus who told you you don't have to thirst again? 
You can have new life if you just quit living for yourself and start living for the Lord. You see, the Lord Jesus thirsted on the cross so we might never, ever thirst again. Number six, verse 30 of John chapter 19. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. One of my favorite statements of the cross. It is finished. When you compare this statement with the other Gospels, you see that it was a declaration. He shouted this with a loud voice, a crying out, it is finished. It wasn't a little a whimper, a defeat, oh, it, it is finished. No, it was a, rather a triumphant shout of the victory of the Son of God, our Savior. His mission was to die for the sins of humanity, and he completed his mission. It is finished. Three words, which are actually one Greek word, to telestai. In fact, there have actually have been uh, receipts for taxes that have been found from that time with the word to telestai on, written across them, which simply means paid in full. You know, they make stamps today. They say, paid in full, and you get that receipt. Well, this is what Jesus said. He took your place on the cross. He absorbed your punishment. He paid the price for you and my sin, and he said, it's finished. Every sin you've ever done, every sin you ever will do, the price has been paid completely. That's why he declared it is finished. It's over. It's accomplished. And now we finally come to the last statement Jesus, statement Jesus made from the cross, and it's found back where we started. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 46, says this, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus' last words from the cross, number seven, the number of completion. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, with that last statement, we know that Jesus actually did die. His, his death was not some illusion, as some suggest. Lord had a real body that experienced all the sinless infirmities of, of, of human nature. He knew what it was like to grow up. He knew what it was like to, to drink and to eat and to sleep and to feel pain. And our Lord knew what it was like to feel real suffering. And He died a real death. But even though Jesus experienced all the infirmities of man, He was always in control. He was always in control to the point where we read that He says, Okay, I'm done here. I've, I've come, I've done what I've come to do. Now, into your hand, Father, I commit my spirit. Jesus said this in John 10, 10, 17. Therefore, my Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. I laid down my life, Jesus said, that I may take it again. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. No one takes my life. I give it to you. And he gave up his spirit. Now, at that point, we know a number of miracles took place. The veil in the temple tore from top to bottom as God opened up a way to the Holy of Holies. Graves, we read, were opened up and some of the saints were resurrected. Why? Because Jesus proved victorious over sin with the torn veil and over death with the open graves. We also know that right after Jesus gave up His Spirit that there was a great earthquake reminding us of the great earthquake at Mount Sinai when God came down and gave the law to Moses. But the earthquake at Calvary didn't announce the terror of the law, but the fulfillment of the law. Jesus died conquering sin and death and fulfilling the law through Jesus. We have victory over sin, over death, and over the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing we experience today comes through what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. 
Every victory of faith that we win is because Jesus died for us. Every time we overcome Satan, it's by the blood of the Lamb. We enter into God's presence to worship and pray because Jesus tore the veil when His flesh was torn on the cross. And because we have been identified with Christ in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, we can overcome the flesh and walk in the newness of life according to Romans 6. The world, the devil, has defeated enemies because Jesus was lifted up upon that cross. Understand, precious people, that Jesus accomplished so much for us on the cross that the only thing left for us to do is to honor Him with every aspect of our being, our entire lives, every breath that we have, to honor Him and bring glory to His name. And we're going to do that right now as we pray and enter into a time of communion. But before we do, I, I want to remember these last seven words of Jesus and apply them to our own lives and the lives of every believer. Listen, number one, God has forgiven us. Number two, God will remember you in paradise. Number three, God has made you a part of a new family, the family of God. Number four, God can look on you now because he turned his back on his son. Number five, our thirst is taken away because Jesus satisfies. Number six, our debt has been paid in full. It is finished. And finally, number seven, as Jesus committed his spirit to the Lord, so too our spirits, our souls, our lives should be committed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in everything that we do. That gives us reason to celebrate communion because communion is a time for us to reflect and remember just what Jesus Christ did for us upon the cross. My daughter, Laura, sent me this uh, earlier this afternoon, earlier this morning, and I thought it was really, really cool. It's a post that she found. It says, think about this for a second. Jesus knew. He goes into that room with his disciples. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows it is Judas who will turn against him. He knows that he's been sold out for a handful of silver, stabbed in the back by one he has poured his life into. Yet in that room, hours before the death of Jesus, Judas ate too. Jesus fed Judas too. Jesus prayed for Judas too. Jesus washed Judas' feet too. I struggle to fathom that kind of love. A love that would feed the mouth that deceived you. A love that would wash the tree treasonous feet of the traitor, a love that could forgive even the vilest of betrayals. I honestly struggled to comprehend it, and then suddenly I realized that I'm Judas. And in that moment, I'm so thankful and altogether overwhelmed that Judas ate too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can enter into this time of communion to remember just what you did for us upon that cross, Lord Jesus. As you took my sin, our sin, each one of us here, and paid the the, the debt that we could never pay, Lord. We owed a debt we could never pay, and you paid a debt that you didn't owe. And we are so thankful. We praise you for it. And Father, I, I do believe we are all believers here this afternoon, but Lord, if there is one person here that has not put their faith and trust in you, Lord, that they would see what you've done for them and they would surrender their heart and their life to you right now. They can have their sin forgiven and be born again today. Lord, we praise you for that. And now, Lord, as we enter into this time of communion, we want to celebrate what you've done for us and praise you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.